Welcome to another episode of the How to Save the World podcast, where we take a deep dive into the academic research and behavioural science of what really gets people to take pro-environmental action and behaviour. I'm your host, Katie Patrick. I'm an environmental engineer and a designer based in Silicon Valley, California, and I'm the author of the book, How to Save the World. Hey, everyone. Today, I wanted to talk about the top 10 biggest mistakes that I see with everybody who is working on social and environmental change programs. Now, these mistakes are made from the very top, most experienced people in the game. I'm talking about international organizations, major not-for-profits, government departments, large companies, all the way down to the medium, right through to the small, beginner, early stage startups and activists and young people. We all make these mistakes because we just don't really necessarily know the art of what it takes to change entire civilizations, to market out pro-environmental messages to thousands or even millions of people and to build campaigns that get people to often do things that are less convenient more expensive, having to go without something in the face of the normal consumer-driven society, which is trying to tell you how you can have more and consume more and make things easier. So how do we do all this stuff, right? This is why we study behavioral psychology, why we study environmental psychology, to understand how the human nervous system works when it's doing stuff so we can interject our environmental campaigns in a way that works. And Unfortunately, a lot of environmental campaigns are just not optimized to tap into human psychology. And I tell you what, all of the major corporations, the uh, major definitely social media corporations, anyone that's trying to sell you shoes, makeup, marketing, they are on top of this stuff, right? They want to make millions or billions of dollars. They're across this stuff and it's not really filtering through to us who are not as profit motivated, right? And I don't want you to make these mistakes. So let me jump in to what they are. Mistake number one, this comes up with every single environmental psychology expert I interview on the podcast, which is you don't change people's behavior through getting them to be more educated about the issue. This is kind of like If you were going to the gym, if you learned all about fitness, right, if you just intellectually learned all about fitness, would you suddenly start working out more? Not necessarily. If you want to get people to exercise, you would think about all the sort of psychological tips and tricks are involved to get people to work out. It's usually not that much about the educational facts about how important exercise is for you. So when we think about that in the terms of using less plastic, getting involved in local advocacy, doing whatever we need to do for climate, all of the things, we make the hypothesis without even realizing that we're actually making a hypothesis at all. We make the hypothesis that if people just knew more about it, then things would change. You've made this mistake. I've made this mistake. We've all made this mistake. And it doesn't mean that education and knowledge isn't important. It is an ingredient, but it is not going to do all the work and all the heavy lifting for you. Think of it as one nutrient or vitamin in what it takes to create a whole healthy system. So people go into this just thinking if we just create documentaries and books and lectures and educational material, then this will somehow all materialize into people going about and taking action. And behavioral science shows 
over and over again. There are many, many studies on this. There's even a full Wikipedia page on it that shows that this just is not the case. It's called the value action gap. It means that we have values and we don't necessarily act on them. And in this space is the gap. And everything that I do in my pursuit of sharing behavioral science and environmental psychology with our community is really ultimately trying to bridge that gap. How do we get the action to happen and not just laying on more and more and more education? I mean, once somebody already knows that it's important to help the climate and it's important to do all this stuff, you don't really need any more education. You are adding on more of a nutrient that you already have. Like, why would you take more iron tablets if you don't have an iron deficiency. So we're all like, oh, let's give people more iron tablets, more and more iron, more iron. But that's really not the deficiency. That's not what people need. So don't make that mistake. Don't think that education, intellectual learning is going to lead to people actually taking action. There is a whole science and a process to doing action design. And we talk about it in this podcast. We go into it in detail in my behavior mapping bootcamp course. Or it's actually not bootcamp. It's called behavior mapping masterclass. That will teach you how to do action design. There are other ways to get into the core of the human psyche. There's a bunch of different ones. I cover all of them in the behavior mapping masterclass. It's too big a field for me to jump into in this podcast, but you really want to be hitting the social core and the data feedback core and the progress tracking towards a goal. There's a lot in that. If you want to take a deep dive, it's in the Behavior Mapping Masterclass. It's available to purchase that course online at Ecopia Store, the new eco positive eco futures art store that I'm so happy to have out there. It's at ecopiastore.com if you want to take a dive into that. And it's also available if you sign up to the Patreon. Now, the second biggest mistake caring. If people just cared more, this is an extension from what I was just talking about with the value action gap. Getting people to care more is not action. Knowing everything about climate change, deeply caring about climate change, those things are not actions. And those things don't even necessarily enable actions. So don't try to get people to care more. This is not a causal mechanism, a primary causal mechanism. Again, it is an ingredient. It'll help. It'll definitely help if people know more, definitely help if people care more, but you're not going to get them over the value action gap. You have to take an action-based behavioral science approach of encouraging behavior and you use a completely different skill set when you are trying to encourage action than when you are trying to get people to learn more and care more. And we spend so much time getting people to learn and to care. We just really kind of need to stop doing that and take this action-based approach. And the way to know whether you are taking action, there is just one simple word that governs it all, and that is evidence. Where is the evidence of the actions that were taken? If you hold a documentary screening and a whole bunch of people sign up to it, maybe you create a documentary, maybe you have an Instagram reel about something really important that got shared by millions of people, or you signed people up to a, a conference or got people to engage in your game or buy your thing or whatever, at the end of it, where is the evidence that the actual action that you could measure, you could measure the kilograms of CO2 or the trees or the plastic or whatever, you could measure it. Where is the evidence at the end? If you had to go like to court, to some like social change court and you had to go to the judge and he or she or they said, and where is the evidence that I can measure, that I can see in real world data that the change happened and you had to show it, and you say, oh, but like, you know, thousands of people like signed up or looked at my thing. And they're like, that is, that is not evidence. So you know when it's happening, if you can show the evidence. It's not easy to do. It's hard to do. It's actually quite 
easy to get people's attention for education and turning up to events and stuff like that and content, but the real change, that's where the real work comes in. So just remember that, look at the evidence, the real world evidence as a measure of how your change is occurring rather than that the project was really cool or people looked at it or that it was fun or exciting or all of the other things that we can get caught up in. Mistake number three is money. We have a massively over-amplified sense of or a belief that thinking that people are way more motivated by money than they really are. Now, yes, we are all motivated by money to a certain extent, but look at how much we are actually not motivated by money. Like, do all of our major life decisions really revolve around money that much? When you look at people who go on holidays, people who buy expensive, fancy brands, looking at how we are connected to our families. The things that really drive people is not all, like, do we go every day being like, how can I make the most money and how can I penny pinch on every single thing that I'm buying completely? Now, some people might live their life that way, but most of us, money is really just an enabler or a restrictor of the things that we really want. Like we want to live in a nice house. We want to be safe. We want to have good people around us. We want to have some nice things, have an interesting career, have meaning, have spirituality, have purpose, have connection to nature. We want all these things. And with enough money, you can actually do all that stuff properly. And money might be like holding you back a little bit from doing that, or maybe a lot. And trying to pay people essentially to do pro-environmental actions or find them, you're actually using one of the weakest tools you have in order to motivate pro-environmental change. Because the reason why people do things is, or do things that they don't really have to do, is because they deeply believe in them. They're a core value system. Most of us don't litter not because we're about to get fined $200 by a policeman that might see us littering. We don't litter because it's in our value system that that's a bad thing to do. We don't hurt people around us, or most of us don't, because it's in our value system that that's a bad thing to do. And so when you tap into somebody's core value system, core signature of who they think they are as a good, responsible person, that is what is going to primarily drive the behavior. Okay, there's a lot of other things that drive it as well, but that that belief that it is the right thing to do. And that is far more powerful than money. And the behavioral science shows that if you essentially pay people to be green, like give them, you know, like all the, the free stuff and the incentives and all these kind of monetary rewards, as soon as you take away that reward, the environmental behavior will drop off. It will stop. Because you basically, it's just sort of like a job. Like you don't really want to be there. You were just paid to be there and then you're not paid anymore. So like, why would I show up? But when you trigger the deeper intrinsic value systems, then these behaviors will remain. Like I tell you what, there is nothing that will make me not compost. Like I will never, ever not compost. I don't care. There is nothing you can do to stop me and there's nothing you can do to enable me. It's deeply intrinsic. And that's where we really want to be hitting to the core, the core calling to people to get them to do stuff. And all money is going to do is inhibit the intrinsic motivation if it's a hurdle. Like if I really, really want to put solar in my house and it costs $10,000 and I that's a, a lot of money for me, if I can get that for 3000 the only thing money is doing is removing the barrier that was there because of the money. The money is not going to be the motivation. 
So you want to like amplify the intrinsic motivation and all the social cues and all the behavioral cues that can drive that intrinsic motivation. Okay, which education and caring comes into, but the, the money should only be there if like it's a big block, like if it's a real roadblock, the people really want it and they're just like, oh, I just, I really want it, but I just like really, really can't afford it. That's the place to put the financial incentive. The money is honestly is not going to do the heavy lifting for you and it's not what drives us and we should really not be seeing environmental change so much through a monetary lens that if it was just cheap and if it was just easy, honestly, if everything was just cheap and easy and everybody did the cheapest thing, there would be nothing in the world other than the cheapest thing. There would just be, people would just eat rice and potatoes and bananas and peanut butter, and there would be nothing else in the supermarket. There would only ever be the cheapest thing. There would only ever be the cheapest clothes. It would be hard to get stuff from Goodwill thrift stores because everybody would buy it up. People aren't going for the cheapest thing. They're all going for different things that suits their personality. So don't think that environmental behaviors have to always be the cheapest thing. Okay, number four, this drives me absolutely nuts, is that there is no feedback loop of data hardly anywhere for the environmental change that we're trying to create. And even the best data feedback loops we have, which are for electricity grids, are still kind of like hidden, like in the back of these dinky like government websites. Like if you want to change something, the core part of change is that you have a feedback loop and the feedback loop is signaling to the person who is doing the action and giving them a positive feedback loop when they're doing the action and giving them a negative signal when they're not doing the action. Like this is the core mechanism of change. We have feedback loops all in our body to drive us towards something that's warm and away from something that's cold or away from something that's burning us or towards something that's delicious and away from something that's bad or towards light if we need to be in light away from the darkness or towards people or away from people we have all these feedback loops that are driving us to do more or do less of something and you're not going to be able to activate a whole bunch of people to change if you don't have that core feedback loop of change built and it is painful it is agonizing once you get feedback loop eyes and you start to see it you will see how feedback loops are basically missing everywhere. It is tragic. We are not measuring our environmental footprint in anything close to real time and anything close to signaling to people. Like this whole infrastructure that is the core mechanism of change of how every species, every organism on the planet for the last four billion years has been evolving is through the mechanism of the feedback loop. Like we don't have it. We don't have it for how much trash we're making. How much trash did I make in the last week? I've got no idea. How much carbon dioxide emissions did I produce? Well, I could probably calculate it because I kind of specialize in this stuff, but I actually just don't know off the top of my head. Is Nothing signals to me. How much water did I produce? What about for my town, for my city, for all of California? Like it's just not there. It comes out once a year, maybe once every two years from some government organization in a PDF report. Like it's really, really bad. Okay. Air pollution is actually pretty good. Air pollution and electricity is where it's done well. Everywhere else, it's not done that well. And it just, it has to be signaled to the person that you want to have the action, not just signaled ambiently to all these different people everywhere, but to the specific audience that's going to make the change that needs to be changed, the thing that needs to be done. So, I mean, honestly, if you're not measuring what you want to change and you're not building a feedback loop that is central to this change, like change is probably not happening. You're probably just 
doing lots of work and nothing is really happening, which unfortunately happens a lot. It happens to me too. It's hard to get around this stuff. But yeah, the data. Focus on the data. Biggest mistake number five is not looking at groups or not thinking of your human population in the terms of groups. When you see environmental campaigns rolled out through cities, through not-for-profits, like with startups, we always think about like who's like the target customer or the target audience or the type of person we're trying to get out to. And the thing is that there is no real target person. There are groups of people. We all function in groups in some kind of way. Well, well, most of us do. That we have a group in terms of like my apartment building is a group. My daughter in her school is another group. If you work at a company, you have a group of people that you work with. Your family is a group. Your housemates are a group. Your friend group is a group. Your sports teams, groups everywhere. We all function through the lens of groups. And if you are trying to get to activate people to try to do stuff and treating them like they're an individual not as a member of a group, you are going to be failing to harness the main reason why people do anything and or the way behaviors or anything spreads in society because things spread from one person doing something in a group. It could be like listening to a band or wearing a certain type of clothing or having a like a political identity or whatever it is. Like somebody has something about them and then that spreads through the process of social diffusion to the group usually through conversation, like meeting with people and talking about it. And then bit by bit, these conversations happen over and over again. And then your friends and people around you in your community, they will copy you. This is the core mechanism of how all things spread. It's exactly the same way that a virus spreads. When someone gets the flu, it spreads to people who make contact with them in physical, real life. And that's how social change and how environmental behaviors happen. So what you want to do is bring people into groups, get them to commit to doing something, being part of a group, like a gardening group or a local sustainability group, or you're sort of tacking on some environmental or climate things to existing groups and get them to talk about it with each other, the action or the behavior, not just the intellectual learning, as a group. And then people will start copying each other in the group. You know, if you've got like, let's eat more plant-based group and one person will be like, oh yeah, like I've been plant-based or vegetarian for 10 years. I've got all these great recipes. Why don't you guys come over? You know, like everyone will be like, oh wow, interesting. They look really healthy. Yeah, cool. Okay, well, I'll, I'll start to do that. That is where you're going to meet your superpower of change is by getting groups of people together. And if you already have a group, there are a lot of groups that are only just focus on education. Like we have, you know, guest lectures, meetups, learning. If you can actually bring the action and some action design into that group, you've already got a group. So you can actually really lead them to action very easily. It's quite sad how there are so many groups around for environmental causes and people meet and then they learn things and then they go away without really focusing on what particular actions that they want to focus on. Humans are not islands. They are groups. Like we got to like market and plan everything we do for that. It's more labor intensive. It's more work to gather people into groups and to just like, oh, I'll just put stuff out on the internet and like hope people sign up. But that's where you're going to really start seeing the change happen. And that's what we want, isn't it? Like we want the real change to happen, not just the sort of fiction that I'm doing something cool and I'm maybe changing something, right? And stemming from that, biggest mistake number six is not realizing that 
the, one of the most powerful ways to motivate anybody to do anything is to compare them to other people in the group or compare other groups to each other. If you can show people's emissions, and this doesn't need to be individual people, it can be cities, companies, schools, sports clubs, gyms, hotels, restaurants, anything, you want to give them a measurement and you want to compare them. This is the power of leaderboards. You can just create one group and compare everybody. And it's not with the idea of, oh, let's get everybody like super competitive. And people, some people like don't like the idea of getting people to compete in a group. I don't like to think of it as competition. I like to think of it as disclosure. Okay, cool. We're all interested in achieving the same thing. Say if you had a bunch of restaurants and 10 restaurants signed up because they wanted to learn how to, you know, create less emissions and save on their, their energy bills. And then you found out what their score was and then you ranked them all. This would be a form of disclosure. So they could look at it and they could be like, wow, why is that one like so much higher than all the others? And why is that one lower? And then they can have like a meaningful conversation about it. And you can have multiple groups. For example, if it was like classrooms, like you had multiple like classes in a school and then that group gets a group score and then the group score competes. In one of my other episodes with Professor Marcus, Oh, I can't remember his last name. But anyway, it's about all the gamification techniques. He says it's essential to get groups competing with other groups like football teams, that it's best to not compare individuals against individuals in a group. You don't want people in group necessarily competing with each other, but you do want groups competing against other groups. That really brings out the best in people because then it's this combination of collaboration. Everyone in the group is collaborating, being like, oh, how can we like outcompete the other group? And we love to collaborate in these deep kind of complex relationships of problem solving, but then we also get that bit of human competition with another group. Mistake number seven, oh my God, there's going to be a full episode on this because like I just, every single person is missing this or missing some part of it. And if there's one big like 2024 kind of aha moment that I've had, it is that like everything is a funnel. Everything is a funnel. If you haven't heard of the funnel concept before, it is like, imagine a funnel that you pour water down it has like a big opening and then it gets like narrower sort of through the middle and then it has like a small end where the water comes out at the end and people think they are building an idea they think that they oh look like I'm building you know like a, a game or a conference or a fashion brand or an app or a incentive local city council incentive program everybody thinks about their idea instead of thinking about it as a funnel you are, if you are building anything, any business at all, doesn't matter what it is, any business, any campaign, any process, you are building a funnel. And within that funnel exists the product that you sell. So the funnel is, the big end is the marketing system. How do you get out to people that you don't already know? And this is where people get really unstuck because they come up with cool ideas I mean, I've been unstuck with this stuff as well. I mean, that's why I know how to talk about it. They are coming up with cool ideas, working on prototypes, trying to get things off the ground, and then they are hit with, like, how the fuck do I get people to find out about it? I've already sent an email to everybody I know. I posted it on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Like, oh, and then I think, oh, well, I've just got to get, like, a celebrity endorsement or something. If I only just had a celebrity or had an influencer talk about it, Listen, influencers and celebrities are not going to talk about your thing unless, you know, it's genuinely really valuable to them. Like you've paid them good money for it, which is too expensive for startups, or you've really built a relationship and you've got something to offer that's equally as valuable 
as the years and years of audience cultivation that they've built up. It is no joke to build up a following of 10,000, 20,000, 100 people and really nurture those relationships, put out really good quality, really emotionally resonant content, building those relationships. And then you want them to just give you all of that for free after they've put in maybe three or five years of like living on, you know, like rice and lentils, sleeping on someone's couch so they could make that much content. Like it's really hard to do. And you're going to have to do that as well. You need a mechanism and it can very easily be 90% of the work of putting out messages, getting out to people that you don't already know through Instagram reels, through going door knocking, like a house to house, getting to know people, DMing people on LinkedIn, asking every single person you know for an introduction, going to companies and giving lunch and learn workshops for free. Like it is seriously, it is no joke to try to get your message, your pitch of your idea out to lots of people who have never, ever seen it before. It's very hard to do. It's a whole skill set and you need to build the system for how you're going to do that and which mechanisms you're going to use. Are you going to go hard on Instagram? Are you going to use YouTube? Are you just going to go through corporate presentations? Are you going to go to city managers like individually? Like what? what's the mechanism that you're really going to go for? And you've got to build that. That is the system that you are building. And then when they get into the funnel, when they see that and they're like, oh, cool, that looks interesting, then they move into the middle section of the funnel, which is the relationship building part. So you might be holding regular events to get to know people. You might offer a 21-day challenge. You might give like a free series of like guided meditations or, or something or an information session. So once they know you, this is the time when you start to build trust and credibility with them. You've piqued their interest. They're like, cool, I'll learn. I'll sign up for that. I'll keep going. And then you have a period of time to build the relationship and then you close the deal. And when people come up with their ideas, their ideas are generally in like one of the three different parts of the funnel without building out the funnel. So if one person has an idea that's at the front of the funnel, it could be like really cool art project that gets out to lots of people. It could be Instagram content, something that's really attention grabby, something like an event. And they don't have like the rest of the funnel built. And they think that is their idea. No, that is just the attention grabbing bit. Then you have to actually sign people up to the relationship building phase. So if you do some like incredible art installation or like amazing event or a piece of content that gets out there or a game that's attracting attention, once people sign up, how are you going to actually be building that relationship? And what is the close that you want to make? Like the close will either be purchasing something like a solar panel or an electric car. It'll be some sort of political engagement, maybe donating money, or it could be something non-financial, like an actual behavior, like you're getting people to compost or start something in their company or whatever. But there will be a primarily a purchase or an action at the end. So you see people doing this really cool, fun stuff, and then they're like, oh, cool, like all these people like signed up for it. And I'm like, well, yeah, but then you have to actually then build the relationship building system, like sign up for my, you know, six-week, you know, training course or whatever it is to really get to know them and then know exactly what that closing action is going to be at the end, right? And you have to have all three sections. And the cool thing about when you see it through this lens of that you're actually building a funnel not building like a startup or a company or a artistic project or product or cool idea or whatever it is, is that you can like put all different sorts of ideas in that. Like you can build your funnel system 
under, you know, a brand with a vision, with a purpose. And you can try one idea in that funnel and the idea, it doesn't matter if the idea doesn't work because you can get switched out. You can be like, okay, we tried the game and the, nobody really liked the game or people sort of played it. And then you can switch it out and say, you know what, actually we want to do like coaching. Okay. Actually, we want to do like corporate president, corporate programs, like HR programs. Oh, you know what? Actually, we want to work for city sustainability managers, whatever it is. Once you've got the funnel built, like you can just keep iterating whatever it is that gets people through the funnel. And it's the thing about an idea is that all your idea is, is a way to get somebody through the funnel. If your idea is like, like an app, that app is just helping people get through the funnel. If it's an event, your event is just helping people get through the funnel. So just start to see it like a funnel that people sign up for. And once you start to build like that, then you can really build a system for change because an idea by itself, it cannot do anything. If nobody sees it, if it doesn't have a way of getting out to lots of people, if it doesn't have a way of building relationship and it doesn't have a mechanism for closing the sale or closing the action, it's not doing anything. And I think every single person misses this. I really missed this for a long time. And it's only now that I'm truly going about everything I do. Like I just design the funnel. That's it. And I may actually only start teaching this is how to design funnels now because I've taught a lot of like behavioral science to a lot of people. And if you have a cool idea, if it's not in a funnel, like it's not going to work. Like it's not going to get people to do anything. So anyway, the funnel. Okay. And part of this branching from the funnel Mistake number eight is that there's no landing page. There's no mechanism to sign people up. Like you'll have a cool idea and I'll be like, well, where can people sign up for it? And there's like, oh, maybe we have a website. Well, they'll have a website, but no way to sign up. And not just a newsletter, like a landing page is sign up for this thing. Sign up for this wait list. Sign up for my text message group. Sign up for my free top 10 tips PDF download, sign up for my free audio meditation, sign up for a free Zoom workshop on this, sign up for a consulting call. Like people have to be able to look at what you do, be like, I'm down for that. Like that's cool. Like your vision, that they see the vision, they see the goal and they're like, I want that. Yes, I want to save the trees in my local area. Yes, I want us to have compost pickup around me. Yes, I want to help climate change. I'll sign up. It doesn't need to be anything fancy, but they need this mechanism to put in their email, maybe even their phone number. And so you can actually build this sort of member list and it can even just be a wait list. This does not need to be fancy. You need to have some mechanism for signing people up, something that they're not paying for. They're signing up so you can build your audience, build your email and your text message list. And I just like uh, almost everyone who comes to me is like missing it. They don't have it. Like there is nothing there. If you look at every single website I've ever made, my homepage, kattypatrick.com, helloworldy.com, ecopia.us, blockclub.us, what else have I got? Urbancanopy.io, the Imagine Project, that's kattypatrick.com forward slash imagine. And every other landing page I've ever done, right up the front, it's like sign up for blah, blah, blah. There's a way to sign up. And that is why I have thousands of people on my email list and I can release products and change what I do and there's a whole bunch of people who follow me, right? That's how it's done. And honestly, if you cannot get people to sign up for your landing page, like what makes you think you're going to get people to sign up for something more complicated and harder than that? If they won't sign up for a wait list, a free future ticket to something you might do one day, if you can't get people to sign up, like what makes you think for something free, for something that is just really, really small and easy, then 
what makes you think that they'll sign up to spend a hundred, a thousand dollars, or change a whole bunch of their behaviors? Like they're not going to do the other stuff if you don't have the skill and the talent to get people to put in their email address enthusiastically to sign up for the vision that you are putting out there. It's just like marketing essentials 101. If you can't do that, like you're not going to be able to move through the next levels of the karate belt skills of what it takes to build an audience and to build people signing up for anything. Next biggest mistake I see, number nine. Are there too many mistakes on this? I think maybe 10 or 11 is maybe too much for one podcast. But anyway, we'll keep going. Is a real reluctance to do like sort of like a deep emotional one-on-one connection with people. And when I mean one-on-one, I don't mean one-on-one through like Instagram or podcast. I mean actually talking to real people. Okay, you want to get out to thousands of people and solve climate change, but like, okay, you don't want to actually talk to your neighbor. You don't want to actually talk to the parents at your school. And I get that it is scary. I feel completely intimidated talking to people in my community and parents at my daughter's school and random strangers about like environmental stuff that's awkward. It's hard to do. I get that. But that is where you're really going to build, you know, your group and your following and, you know, making that sort of like close connection with people. So they're going to be kind of brought into the environmental mission through their relationship with you. You don't need to do this forever, but in order to like get your first like 10, 20, 50, 100 people really engaged in the actions that you want to do, you're going to have to do the hard yards of getting to know people on an intimate level, like one-on-one, like hold a meetup where you live and get people to come to it. Talk to people on the phone, call them one-on-one, get their, you know, send text messages back and forth. I just launched the Ecopia store and I went through all of the customers and sent everybody an individual text message from my regular phone. I only have one phone number and said, hi, I just wanted to send you a personal message saying thanks for like, you know, purchasing an art or calendar or whatever. And it was really nice. And, you know, everybody I texted, they text back and, you know, it's cool. Like we have each other's numbers now if they want to like get in touch with me. And There's people are so afraid of having one-on-one contact with people. Why are we all so afraid of having like a real conversation about the stuff that we most deeply care about, like in our communities? It's kind of like insane, right? So you've got to like break the fear, break the barrier of talking to people, right? Because otherwise you're just going to be talking to all your environmentalist friends and then all your environmentalist friends get together and they're like, we're only just preaching to the converted. I'm like, yeah, the only reason you're preaching to the converted is because you'll only talk to people that you already know or already feel comfortable with. Go out of your sphere, talk to other types of people and when people sign up for your landing page or your project, you know, like call them on the phone. Just say, send them like an email and say, hey, like let's chat about this. When people sign up to my Patreon, I do a welcome call. Like I don't sort of promote it out there that like, like, hey, sign up to Patreon and get a free call with me. Like I just, I just want to get to know people. I like to see where they're coming from. And it's a really nice quality bit of customer service to do after someone's spending money with me. It's like, not paid for. I'm not expecting anything out of it. It's just a way to create that close connection with people. And I don't know why everybody is so fearful of this one-on-one connection. They kind of think, oh, it doesn't scale. And how am I going to really get out to lots of people if like I'm doing so much one-on-one talking with people? Well, like if you can't develop your first 10, 20, 50, 100 people that you have like a close connection with, they're not going to be able to tell all their friends and grow. You have to invest in your primary community first, get to know them really well, and then they will tell their friends. Yes, it is labor intensive. Yes, it's a lot of work, but 
That's what you have to do to get to a stage where you have enough other people that then will tell enough other people that you can get to that 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, right? And environmental behaviors, because they are often kind of inconvenient, they require change, they come at some sort of cost, even if it's just an inconvenience or kind of a change cost. We're asking people to do stuff differently. They won't do it because they're intellectually driven. They'll do it because they value the relationship with you and you guys are kind of doing it together as a team and so it's kind of like a group sort of fun thing to do together. They do it because of the emotional relationship with you and that they like being a part of that type of group, not just because they intellectually think it's important to, you know, have more trees and stuff, right? People don't really like doing things alone in a solo type of a way. So don't, don't be afraid of just of getting to know people. Like, it's, it's a, honestly, it's the only reason why things spread from one person to another. Biggest mistake, number nine, is focused on problems instead of solutions. Now, I hope that our, like, our whole movement is getting more like solutions-focused rather than problems-focused. But for a long time, all the larger conversation about climate and sustainability and the earth was problem, 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 crisis, 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 air pollution's terrible, CO2 is going up, there's like plastic everywhere, terrible, 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 all these bad things are happening. And that's a very different lens in which to tell a story about how you are saving the planet than looking at solutions. Like what are the solutions? What would our beautiful eco community look like? What would a supermarket look like if it was completely zero waste, plastic free? How would all of like the composting and the waste circular economy stuff work? What does a renewable energy world look like? There is a very different psychological effect when you are showing people pictures of environmental problems versus pictures of environmental solutions. In one of my other podcasts with Professor Joshua Carlson, he is a neuroscience, a cognitive science PhD. He runs a lab and they tested the unconscious instinctual uh, attention effects of showing people scary climate problems versus climate solutions, which is, you know, renewable energy, eco-friendly houses and that type of thing. And they found that showing people climate disasters triggers the fight or flight response. It causes a freezing effect in attention. When you see something, you just sort of lock up and then you move your attention away. We're showing people pictures of positive environmental outcomes actually drew people's attention in and absorbed their focus, they got them to focus. And also solutions are something that we can do. Like I can emulate a solution. If I see a picture of a solar panel, I can copy that. It's called a social norm. I see that as being normal. So I'm thinking, oh, I have to be normal too. I'm going to do that. I can emulate, I can copy it and I can buy myself a solar panel. If I just see like a big storm or like some data about climate change, that's not an action that I can instantly copy because humans do behaviors because they are copying the behaviors of others. That is the only way we really learn how to do behaviors because somebody shows us. If you've ever taken care of little kids like toddlers, they just copy you. The only way that you can teach a kid to do something because they can't really talk yet or understand language is you show them, you like press the button, you know, and then they can do it, right? Don't do that, you know, like this is how we do it. You have to visually kind of physically show them and then through imitation, they will learn how to do it. That is how human beings work. So when you're showing solutions, these are things that people can copy. So you don't want to be using all the images of like how bad everything is. Like only use it 
very kind of surgically where you really need to to show the severity of the problem, but it's not like the whole campaign. Like you really don't want it taking up all the space. You want to be focusing, showing pictures, images of solutions. And I tell you what, I've been doing environmental marketing communications for 20 years. It's been my full-time job, my passion, sharing this information. The only things I've ever done that have gone viral on the internet that lots of people have looked at, that people love, that people sign up for is the positive stuff. Like people love to hear positive climate news. I see it in other people's social media as well. Top 10 positive climate news things of the week. There's an amazing Instagram guy with name Sam Bentley. He does these little kind of two or three minute like positive environmental stories. He has over a million followers, just does a great job of this. He's an amazing person to look up to see how popular these positive stories are. People love it. It's going to be great marketing. It's showing people the goal, the vision that you want to get to. And yeah, like it's actually what we're trying to build. It's our goal. It's our destination. It's something that we can work towards. So just just shift all of your communications like away from the problem, a couple of slides, a <laughs> couple of videos just on the problem and make the rest of it just totally focused on the solution. Okay, last mistake I don't see, which is just it's kind of connected to the feedback loop one I mentioned earlier, which is and I say it over and over again, tracking progress towards a goal. People, you know, ask me like, what's gamification? How do you gamify stuff? And in my definition of what gamification is, it is simply tracking progress towards a goal and then giving people like rewards and having like little levels kind of in that process of tracking, of getting, tracking that behavior. So people end up somewhere and then giving a reward mechanism and kind of making it fun at the end. I never see this done well. Never once in my life have I ever seen the process of tracking progress towards a goal in anything environmental ever done well. Like never, ever. And it is the core of the dopamine reward system is we fixate on some sort of goal that we want. Dopamine drives us to get that goal and then we get a boost when we've achieved the goal. That is the whole mechanism that we have for getting anything done. So we have to, with our environmental work, figure out what the goal is, get people to commit to the goal, and then figure out how we're going to track the progress towards the goal, how we're going to measure it. And maybe there's a few little like steps, like little stepping stones along the way. And then hurrah, we get this like sort of happy ending when we've completed the goal. So often we're just like in this kind of like murky, like we're just like swimming out in the ocean of like, yeah, just do this and just kind of do that. And maybe like that's the problem and this is terrible and maybe that could be awesome. And without making a very surgically clear specific pathway that you're asking people to join you on, we're going to do this and then we're going to do that and then we're going to do that. And then there is the end and we're going to track exactly what the proper measurement is to get us there. And that's gamification. When I do gamification design, that is what we do. And that's the the only mechanism really for changing anything is that you figure out a goal and then you like track your progress towards that goal. Yet I don't know why we we don't really do it very well in the green space. Like I don't really see it kind of mapped out. And it does require you to be more niche, more narrowed down, knowing exactly what it is you want to do. And then people are like, oh, but I want to get them to do like 50 things. There's all these branches and there's all these data and there's all this stuff. And it's like the schmozzle of we have to get everybody in the world to save all of the problems in the earth. And it's this huge, big spaghetti monster. You've just got to focus niche down, find one thing that you want people to do, get them to commit to it, track the progress, get them to achieve it, and then sort of grow up from there. 
So we're not all just kind of swimming in this ocean of aspirational change and problems and sort of wondering why all these problems keep getting worse. That's the end of the top 10. I think I actually came up with 11 biggest mistakes that I see happen through my 20 years of environmental change, environmental marketing and community building work. If you can overcome these biggest mistakes and not do them, you can drive down into the primary causal mechanisms of what really get people to change. I would highly, highly suggest you do my behavior mapping bootcamp. Sorry, it's not called bootcamp, behavior mapping masterclass. I have two hours of videos where I go through pretty much everything I know. I go through nearly 100 different social marketing and gamification and behavioral science and UI UX techniques all in a 10-step process. Not randomly 10 steps, but a very specific 10-step process that builds upon making a primary feedback loop that's going to create change. And then you augment that primary feedback loop with 20 or 30 different mechanisms that are known to hit right to the motivational core of humans to make more people, you know, activate that feedback loop and actually make change happen. This is a process that I've taught to the United Nations at Harvard University, Stanford, University of California, U.S. Department of State for a major multi-million, I mean, over 100 millions or billions of dollar property portfolios, commercial property, digital twins. It's like the most advanced level of, of thinking that I can apply to designing systems of change. So you can get it at ecopiastore.com. It's just an easy download. It's not expensive at all. You'll need three hours to go through it. And then you'll understand just the, the, the proper kind of template to use so we don't make these type of mistakes. And you can go through in a very surgical way and make sure we come out the other side with an idea or a campaign that's really, really going to work and not sort of fall down these holes that we tend to get, um, we tend to fall down in in the environmental space and instead come up with something that's like really laser focused, really bulletproof that's actually going to make the change happen. I hope you've had a chance to see the ecopiastore.com also because while I've been talking about this, I just kind of, uh, I just kind of like forgot. I spent all last year just putting together this beautiful store that has these gorgeous positive eco-futures artworks on there. You can get them as framed prints, unframed prints if you want something that's like less expensive. Uh, there's t-shirts, hoodies, the calendar has been a huge hit. It's been wonderful that so many people have bought the positive eco-futures calendar with these like fun ecotopia pictures with, I've got found 12 of my favorite quotes, like positive, inspiring, you know, can do it quotes to go on there. And all of my courses are on there too. They used to all be under the Patreon, but not everybody wants to sign up to something that's like a regular sort of debit. So I made them so you could purchase them all each individually. They're not expensive. They're all under $100. Some of them are even only like $25. So you can purchase them all individually and you get lifetime access and you can do them at whatever speed or time that you feel like doing them. So everything I know is on there. There's even a bundle where you can actually get all the courses together if you want to just binge and just learn basically everything I know that I've been able to put together is on there. So that's all at ecopiastore.com. And with the behavior mapping process, if you want to go through it with me rather than just be on the internet watching videos by yourself, I do 
custom behavior mapping workshops with you where we'll go through it together. We have a three-hour Zoom call where we go through your project and your campaign and your mission. This is something I do for very high-level organizations, you know, as well as startups. All types of organizations have been through this process. And then we'll go go through the 10 steps together. And so what you get from that with me is that you'll be able to get my insight into your project. But also the thing that I can really help you with is that I'm able to come up with really good ideas through the process. It's not just like I'm sort of coaching you through the steps. I will come up with idea storming, creative ideas, behavioral ideas, and sort of help you piece it all together so you'll be able to behavior map out your mission with some really cool ideas to help grab people's attention to bring them in, actually get people to move the dial on the actions that you want you want to change, and also my insights into building software and startups and, and all of that type of stuff. So if you want to do that, go to helloworlde.com and there is a form you can fill out to apply for one of my behavior mapping workshops. If you want to have a chat about it first, you can send me a DM or an email if you want to talk about it before paying for it or jumping in. But I do it by application just to make sure that you are completely focused on environmental change. Because sometimes people hear about just like sort of the gamification or the behavior side and they'll sort of approach me, but they don't have a core environmental theme. Or some environmental people aren't genuinely focused on creating measurement-driven change. They just maybe want to like get out and get lots of attention and do a kind of like a crazy fun project. Like I like crazy fun projects, but I'm very specific and surgical about making sure it's going to actually lead to the actions that you want to have happen. And that those actions are going to actually change the data in your feedback loop of what you want to change. So if that sounds interesting to you, that's at helloworlde.com. There's a button there to apply to that. And if you just want the short version, the video version, download that's also on the store at theacopiastore.com. You'd think I'd be able to put them both on the same website, but I'm still trying to figure that one out. Thank you for listening. I hope this was all really helpful to you. Honestly, I want everybody to listen to this. If you could share this episode with people you know, share it with your fellow environmental and climate buddies. Like this has taken me 20 years of just working and working and working at this stuff to really start to clarify all of these gaps and holes that I see across our industry. And like I said, it's right from the very top of major organizations spending millions of dollars often these are the worst because they have not had to necessarily self-fund you've got people working in government and for ngos who are doing it through sort of somebody else is like paying the bill so they can afford to spend five million dollars on a poorly thought out campaign or as when you're like an indie like self-funded person you have to be much more ruthless and so you kind of get a little bit sort of street smarter about how to do it but yeah all over the place like there are just these sort of gaps and these blind spots and these are the top 10 ones that i've listed here today so thank you for listening thank you for your interest in action design and environmental psychology and behavioral science and i will see you in the next episode.